My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. I'll start with this. My family doctor retired a couple of years ago. He transferred his patients to a new doctor who then moved offices to a different and much more inconvenient, for me at least, location. My child's family doctor is also my partner's doctor and works out of an overcrowded hospital practice. We frequently have trouble getting an appointment less than a couple of months in advance. Sometimes we even have trouble just getting through on the phone for a simple prescription refill. I said all that to say this. We count ourselves as very, very lucky. We all have a family doctor. Our first point of contact with the medical system when something is wrong is not a hospital emergency room. As I am sure lots and lots of you listening right now know, that's becoming more and more of a luxury in Canada. Now, it has always been difficult to try and provide every Canadian with a GP. There have always been places like First Nation reserves, rural towns, overcrowded suburbs, where the sheer ratio of space or patients to available doctors makes it nearly impossible. But over the past few years, it's not just people in these places that have struggled to find family doctors, it's everyone. And that means those emergency rooms see more patients than they normally would. But it also means that many Canadians who end up there don't get the early care that could have helped them avoid the emergency room altogether. And their dangerous symptoms may not be caught until it's too late. And like a lot of problems in our medical system, this is getting worse. So how did this happen? And what are our options now? Because we are going to need many, many more family doctors in the years to come And there just aren't enough coming. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is part two of a five-part series on the big story examining the crisis in Canada's healthcare system. Dr. Alika Lafontaine is the president of the Canadian Medical Association. He has also practiced medicine in rural Alberta, where family doctors are sometimes a matter of life and death. Hello, Dr. Alika Lafontaine. Hello. Why don't we start maybe just to give people a sense of the crisis at a top level? How hard is it to get a family doctor in Canada right now? Do we know how many Canadians need one? So the crisis is definitely accelerating. I think for any patient who's currently looking for a family doctor, they realize firsthand just how difficult it is to find an office that's accepting patients. And for those with complex medical conditions, I I think that challenge is even more significant, considering that they they do need to find 
a family doctor who's able to provide the sorts of care that that they require. You know, we we've had about a quarter of patients over the years not be attached to a family doctor, but that's scaled significantly. You know, Statistic Canada has reported that approximately 4.7 million Canadians currently don't have a regular healthcare provider, a family doctor, or otherwise. Wow. And we know that the wait list for family physicians continues to get longer and longer. And so um, it, it's a challenge facing Canadians that, that touches their lives day to day. You mentioned this crisis is accelerating. How long has it been a problem in Canada, though? I know we're hearing more about it now. I know, as you say, you know, first of all, 4.7 million is a staggering number. I know the problem is growing. Um, but we've heard about Canadians being unable, especially in certain locations, to find a family doctor for quite some time, right? You know, the, the crisis has been around for a while. And depending on how much you needed a family doctor, depending on how big that crisis was. But one of the things that we're noticing today that's different than what's happened in the past, is a lot of the ways that patients managed not having a family doctor, going to a walk-in clinic, going into emergency, you know, going to virtual care for, you know, a variety of different conditions. These aren't really working the way that they did in the past. You know, I, you, you end up having a very difficult time getting into a walk-in clinic in a lot of places in the country now. When you go to emerge, I mean, it, it's a common experience to be waiting many, many hours, maybe to the point that, you actually just just go home because you can't get in to see anybody. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that acuity, like how how heavy that is on, on patients now, like that that burden is heavier than it's ever been. Why is that? Is it just the pandemic? So the, the pandemic revealed a lot of things about the health system that have been evolving over the past couple of decades. We've always known that primary care practice, you know, what what family physicians do within the system has always been central to ensuring that Canadians remain healthy. You know, long-term relational care where you develop a trusting relationship with the person who provides you care, where they they know you, they know, you know, the, the things that you want out of your health. They know the challenges that you've had over a period of time. You know, these things really impact care. They, they help you get care faster. They help you to get more nuanced care. They help you to you know, get across to the person that you're trusting to help you kind of on this healthcare journey uh, to move, you know, quickly when when things aren't quote unquote normal for you. Mm-hmm. And what what COVID really did is it created this this space between family physicians and patients and, and other physicians and their patients that that continued to widen as we we socially distanced. And that that relationship really has been weakened over the past few years. You know, partially because of the pandemic, you know, the reality is that we, we did have to shut down in order to deal with this unknown pathogen that, that kind of worked its way across across the health system. But, you know, people's attitudes towards care shifted and the system's ability to provide those expectations, I, I think, has really dropped precipitously over the past couple of years. So I'm speaking to you today um, from downtown Toronto and even here in the largest city in the country, I know many, many people who cannot find a family doctor who are on a wait list with their kids, et cetera, et cetera. But you um, are an Indigenous doctor. As I said off the top, you've worked in fairly rural communities in Alberta. How much more is the problem exacerbated in places like uh, First Nations and in rural Canada in general? I, I think you start off with talking about where access is right now. So what do we know about rural remote communities and many First Nations and Métis settlements in any new communities across the country? There, there really isn't a lot of health infrastructure built within those locations. 
And so when you ask the question of, well, how is shortages going to affect those places differently than, say, an urban center like, like downtown Toronto, if you don't have many options to begin with, losing those options just has a larger effect on you. Mm-hmm. And so when, when you lose access to a family physician in Grand Prairie, where I work, you know, you, you may not be able to actually get any sort of diagnostic pathway started. You know, you, you may come in with an unknown problem and no one can get you down the route of actually starting to get tested and investigated and, you know, getting the types of exams that you get with a primary care provider started. That way you can go and get your problem solved. You know, and, and I think that's that's starting to be felt within urban centers. And I think that's a that's a late sign that this is now getting to a critical point we've never been before. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're in downtown Toronto and you can't get into a walk-in clinic or you wait so long within that walk-in clinic that you, you just give up and you, you go home until the problem gets worse, uh, we know that the crisis has advanced quite a bit. Where are the family doctors going? Are we losing them or are we just growing our population and, and the doctors can't keep up? You know, I, I think it's both of those things. I, I think the expectations that we've had on family physicians historically, they, they just don't match up with the expectations of, of just how heavy family practice often is to shoulder. You know, you, you have someone who comes in to an environment where they're trying to provide a lot of different types of care. You know, they're, they're trying to provide preventative medicine, provide support, you know, provide for people's acute needs, as well as sometimes covering you know, things like emergency room shifts and obstetrical shifts and sometimes acting as surgical assists. You know, all of these things, they, they take up time, you know, and as the administrative burden on family physicians has grown, that's pushed out a lot of the, the patient care time that they've had, or it's pushed their time that they've had for themselves and their family, you know, shorter and shorter. And so you now have people coming into a working environment where, where the demands are so high that they either choose to completely dedicate themselves to, you know, a working environment that that's demanding way too much of anyone uh, or choosing to, you know, actually live a life where they can, they can see their family, you know, they can see the people that they care about, they can rest and recover. And I, I think anyone who comes, comes into contact with that type of unreasonable working environment, it, they're, they're going to make some, some decisions about whether or not they can still, still maintain, you know, the lifestyle that, uh, that they're forced to tolerate. I was going to ask this a little bit later in my notes, but since you mentioned it, I know a couple of doctors who work as GPs and administrative stuff is the one thing they constantly tell me they hate about their job and something that I honestly, as as a non-doctor, had never realized took up uh, such an amount of their time. Can you can you describe the administrative part of a family practice to us? You know, there's administrative stuff that goes along with every job, right? The, the real question is, is, does it take up such a large portion of your day that it's not reasonable. You know, we, we've known in, in recent years that the administrative burdens of following up on things that, you know, you, you don't you don't have income for, like signing off on reports or following up with referrals or signing out, uh, you know, papers that patients need for insurance or right. to apply for, for certain things. You know, these types of things aren't, aren't covered in a lot of the ways that we compensate family physicians. And so that administrative time on average can take up two to three hours of a person's day. Mm. You know, so if you imagine that a family doctor is putting in, you know, an eight to 10 hour day now, in addition to that, they have another two or three hours per day that they then have to do for administrative time. That, that's, that's a very, very heavy burden for someone to carry every single day that they come to work. 
Can you briefly explain, because I know this could probably be a textbook and the textbook would be different in every province, but can you just briefly explain how we do compensate family doctors so people have an idea? Yeah, so there's generally two different ways that physicians are compensated. It's either through a fee-for-service model where you take the things that you do day-to-day and they, they match up to something within what's called a schedule. So it's really, I, I do X activity and I get paid X dollars as a result. The other way that people can be paid is through some sort of approach where you provide, you know, a set amount. So that could be paid for hour, that could be through a salary, that could be through something called capitation. Now, what's important to understand is that these models often don't take into account the really important things that people do day to day. COVID really showed this in spades. You know, you you had physicians who were putting time into pandemic plans, who were creating strategies for their offices and elsewhere in order to address the the needs of patients in the midst of, of, you know, this pandemic that we're working our way through. None of that stuff was covered within these these strategies of of payment because we never considered them. You know, they they just weren't something that were a part of what people expected to happen day to day. And that's really where we're at nowadays. The ways that we thought medicine was practiced in the past is not the way that we practice today. And we haven't caught up with the structures that that we have as far as how people work day to day. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. Before we get into solutions, which we will do um, in one minute, but the whole point of this week we're doing on the healthcare crisis is to talk about how all these items are connected. So can you maybe just draw a bit of a line for us from the lack of family doctors to the crises we're seeing in other areas of the healthcare sector? You know, it's it's probably easiest to imagine, you know, the, the requirements for patient care being like a series of dominoes. You know, as one domino falls, it inevitably puts the weight of itself onto another part of the system. So if you're a patient who comes into a family medicine clinic and for whatever reason, you either can't get an appointment or you end up waiting so long during the day that you decide, you know, this isn't worth it for me. I'm going to go home and, you know, just deal with the problem and come back if it gets worse. Um, You then start to look at other places in the healthcare system to go. So if it's not a clinic, then you go to a walk-in clinic, you know, and if that's overfilled, then you might go for virtual care. Now, if it's a problem that you can solve, then that's great. But if it's not, then you then go to an emergency room. And so you you end up getting a spillage that occurs as each domino falls where, you know, a place after place starts to get saturated with demand. And what do we know has happened over the last few years is that the demand for health services has not been met. And as a result, we, we have millions of services that patients need. You know, and this could be anywhere from blood work to investigations to, you know, sitting down in consults or surgeries. And, and all of these things have to be carried by, you know, primary care practice because that is where everything starts here in Canada. And as a result, you know, the, the experience of going through the healthcare system just ends up getting worse and worse for providers and also for patients. 
This might be me uh, being naive, but when I picture um, a young kid or a student who wants to grow up to be a doctor, I often imagine them wanting to grow up to be a family doctor. That's the image that kids mostly see and the image we often, uh, you know, see uh, represented in the media. So why don't more medical students want to become family doctors and how do we change that? In, in medicine, when you go on your journey to decide the type of medicine that you eventually want to practice, there are a lot of ways that you come about making this decision. You know, you obviously come into medical school and residency with ideas about what medical practice is like as a family physician or a surgeon or you myself as an anesthesiologist. And over the course of going through training, you start to observe how people practice. You start to observe the highs and lows of medical practice. And, you know, we, we all have an expectation of, you know, stress within medicine. I mean, that, that's not a surprise to anyone that medical practice can be very stressful. Um, we also know that there's a weight that comes along with delivering care, you know, sacrifices that we have to give. We, we sacrifice our youth a lot of times. We sacrifice our relationships. We sacrifice, you know, other interests that we have. That way we can become good doctors at what we do. But I think what's happening with a lot of people going through training and, and what they see happening with, with family physicians is, is they see that weight is too much for people to bear nowadays. We, we really need a stabilization to occur for family practice. We have to support those in our communities providing this care because the amount that we're asking for far outstrips the resources that we're providing. And if we don't stabilize that environment, when people see it, they're, they're going to move away from it because uh, intuitively you're, you're going to migrate towards things that you, you feel that you yourself can handle. And I, I think that that's been a shift in, in family medicine that's happened over the past few years. And, and that's, that's something that I, I think it will accelerate if we don't intervene emergently. What does stabilization look like in a family practice? Is it providing administrative assistance? Is it more pay for more services? How do you do it? So I, I think it's all of the above based on what you, you talked about, you know, decreasing the amount of administrative burden, you know, the, the tasks that we ask family physicians to cover when it comes to electronic medical records, you know, the variety of different forms that, you know, we're asking family physicians to, to fill out the uncompensated burdens that we place on family physicians because it's, it's not covered anywhere else in the system. You know, that, that's that's definitely one part. But other parts are things like coordinating care across multiple providers. You know, we, we often talk about team-based care in the country, but the, the frame is often focused on how do you substitute the highest cost provider with the lowest cost provider instead of having everyone share the burden of making sure that the person that you're trying to help actually gets the care that they need so they can leave and, and get back to their life. Hmm. You know, it, it's making sure that we manage increasing complexity through supporting our community physicians through, you know, out of community resources like hospitals and, and acute care centers. You know, it's also making sure that we we communicate to family physicians how important they are within the healthcare system. And, you know, all these things brought together, I think will help to shore up and, and stabilize what, what must be a, a very frustrating situation for family physicians across the country. Even if we convince younger students to choose the family doctor path, it's going to be a while until we 
replenish the stock of family doctors graduating in Canada. Where can we find more? I know provinces like Ontario have recently announced plans to fast-track accrediting international nurses. Is that something we can do with family physicians as well? So I, I definitely believe that finding a pathway to practice for international medical graduates is really important. And ensuring that we always acknowledge that the training that a family physician undergoes it is unique. You know, we we had um, news stories that came out recently where, you know, family physicians and trainees were asked to, you know, fill the role of nurses within acute care settings. I mean, that that's as inappropriate as as believing that, you know, the the opposite is true as well. Everyone is trained in their own unique way right. for the the requirements and, and role that they play in the system. So, you know, bringing bringing additional people into practice is extremely important. Making sure that we have interprovincial ability to to have people move within the country. You know, we we do know in certain parts of the country, um, it's a distribution problem when it comes to family medicine practice. You know, you you do tend to have people tend to consolidate within cities, mm-hmm. you know, and whether you do that through easier registration across provinces or whether it's introduction of virtual care that supports in-person care within communities, you know, those are different ways for for us to provide that support. And then it's also just opening up time for people to actually see patients. You know, when when we talk about administrative burden, that's time that could be better spent redirected towards patient care. You know, when when we save time for family physicians to focus on what matters most to patients and solving people's problems, we actually create more access for everyone. Does the domino theory of the healthcare crisis that you just described also apply to beefing up resources in other directions? In other words, would we have to make a sacrifice somewhere else to take some of that uh, burden of care off of family physicians? So I, I do think in some environments, it is a zero-sum game. But when you look broadly at the system and you start to have you know all options on the table, as has been described by provincial leaders kind of in, in Atlantic Canada, and you know Doug Ford did come out and not too many weeks ago and said, you know, the status quo is not an option. When, when you truly think about everything as a possibility, I think what you start to realize is that there is a lot of duplication and redundancy in the system where people come and don't get their problem solved. And if we redesign around the idea that when you come to see a family doctor in their office or in a walk-in clinic or virtual care or an emergency, that you're seen and then you can leave with your problem solved when it's possible. Now, sometimes it does take a little bit longer. I, I think we'd see enough cost savings that the, the overwhelming burden that everyone's feeling will be lightened considerably. You know, when you consider a regular experience of a patient is, you know, to go to the emergency and, and wait 20 hours, mm-hmm. then give up and then try again the next day and then try again the next day and then go to a walking clinic. You know, that, that's a burden on the health system, but that's also a burden on the patient as well. You know, that's four days of their life that they had to sacrifice in order to try and get access to care. You know, and I think it's really in that space that we have an enormous opportunity if we choose to collaborate across our 13 provincial and territorial health systems to really transform the way that we deliver primary care. And I, I think it'll benefit family physicians and it'll benefit patients as well. You led me right into my last question, which is, how can we possibly coordinate across 13 provinces who, look, I'm just being realistic, not great at getting along um, from one to the other? And 
And we're not exactly known for big, ambitious reworking of public services in this country. Is there going to come a point where it will be unavoidable? What do we need to do to get that started? So we, we always have two choices at any crisis. We can choose to make better decisions early and avoid the worst parts of the crisis, or we can wait for the crisis to get to such a degree that, that we have no choice but to move forward. And I, I think for anyone who is experiencing care right now, they, they know that the health system is in a place that it's never been before. And if we don't act, we will be forced to act. You know, one, one of the reasons why the Canadian Medical Association advocates so strongly around stabilization of family physician practices and, and changes in, in primary care is that avoiding the crisis will be a lot less expensive than waiting for it to evolve and, and just completely break the system. You know, we, we will have to have these big conversations. They, they're bigger than ideology. They're bigger than provincial borders. And when you think of the experience of someone who's living in a province or territory, you know, all of these these people, they, they live in Canada too. You know, we, we often talk about these jurisdictions, but the people who need the care, they're also living in Canada as well. And it's it's on all of us to provide the leadership that we need to have these conversations. And it's it's really a choice. You know, and so will be will we be compelled to choose or will we be active and proactive in, in our choosing? And I, I think that that's really what we're, what we're waiting to see. I want to be optimistic about that. So I'll say I hope we can get this moving soon. Thank you so much, Dr. Lafontaine. Thanks so much for having me. Dr. Alika Lafontaine, president of the CMA. That was The Big Story. For more, including part one of this series, and of course the next three parts, you can head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can follow us on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN. And you can talk to us anytime by emailing hello at thebigstorypodcast.ca. This podcast is available wherever you get them. We would appreciate a rating and a review or a comment, whatever you like. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow.